tonight I'm going to kind of pick up and look at, in, in Genesis chapter 17, that's where we're introduced to circumcision. And so I want to say a little bit about circumcision. And, and then in chapter 18, I want to talk a little bit about angels and the way that the Lord used them in the Old Covenant. And then if we get to it, um, Sodom and Gomorrah is what follows. So we might get through a bunch of scriptures tonight if we, depends how, how talkative I, I feel like I end up being. So, <clears throat> okay, circumcision. Let's read a little bit here in Genesis 17 and then um, make a few comments. It's after this description of the promise that God is speaking to Abraham and he says to them in verse 10, Genesis 17:10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner, who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with money must be circumcised, and the covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Um, and then verse 14, I'll stop with this. And the uncircumcised male child, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now this is really strong language, and and uh, and and, and I, I love it because circumcision is such an important picture. You know, first of all, let me just say this as kind of as a uh, preface to where I'm going. This is not a history lesson. We're not we're not looking at the history of circumcision in, in the Old Testament just to just to understand what it was about then. God still requires circumcision to enter into covenant with him. It's a different kind of circumcision. It's actually the fulfillment of circumcision. But this isn't just something we should look back and say, oh yeah, those guys had to do it. Now it's kind of optional or whatever. whatever. It, that's not the point. The point is that, in fact, in fact, there is nothing. Now, now this can be easily misunderstood, so I'm going to qualify it in a second, but let me, let me just say it. There is absolutely nothing that God has commanded in the Old Testament that he has simply just stopped in the new or that he got tired of or he changed his mind or he just finished with it you know there's not a single jot and tittle Jesus says that doesn't have a fulfillment not not one not one not one uh, jot or tittle of the law will pass away you know and 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 it it never does pass away now Christians in the New Testament or in the New Covenant are, are accustomed to thinking well yeah that's that's the old covenant that's passed away that's not the right way to look at it it's it's true that we don't um have laws about circumcising our children or about bringing off you know no one brings a turtle dove to church on Sunday and you know rips it in half and burns half of it and dunks the other half in or whatever you know we don't do that kind of stuff um, be kind of distracting, I think, if we did, but that's not because God that's not because God finished or just stopped that. He, he never stopped anything. You have to always, in your heart, go back to the beginning. Before there was ever pictures of spiritual reality, there was the eternal purpose of God in the heart of God. Uh, before the foundation of the world, there was a people that God saw living in his son, living by the life of his son, relating to the father in the son. And, and, and so he painted natural pictures of that in the natural realm with things like turtle doves and circumcision and whatever. And then when Christ came, he didn't say, okay, now I have something different that's not what fulfillment is. It's not. It, that's not what the newness of the new covenant is. It's not a new idea. It's the fulfillment of the old idea. It's the turtle dove, but now made real and spiritual in a person that is Christ, working in you, working in your soul. So, I, I guess, I guess I want you. I want all of you to understand that. It's true we don't do, we shouldn't understand anything of the Old Testament as a new covenant law. 
you know, and not and and not just tithing because people people say that. Well, the only one that got made it through the cross and still continues is the law of tithing. And pastors like to say that because pastors like money, but uh, that's not true either. <clears throat> Everything that God painted a physical, natural picture of, circumcision included, has is an eternal reality. It doesn't ever, God never changes his mind. It's just that that thing changes in substance and in place. It changes from a shadow, from the shadow to the substance, from the, from the picture to the fulfillment. It changes in substance and it changes in place. It changes from the external to the internal. That's the change between the old and the new covenant. God never once has changed his mind. He has fulfilled his mind. He has fulfilled his eternal purpose. He's done it in his son, and he's put his son in you. And so it's, it's, it's spiritual, it's Christ, and, the, and it's happening in you. And if you look at any of these things, now if you look at any of them, I mean seriously, any one of Now I, I, probably, I, couldn't, I couldn't show you how every single one of these does, but I could show you how a bunch of these, these, uh, these pictures of the Old Testament law and the priesthood and all the laws and sacrifices and feasts have their fulfillment in you, and how, how the New Testament authors are constantly proclaiming exactly that. You know, you want to look at what are, the, what, what are these, what are these, um, these offerings or, or sacrifices? You know, where, where, do, where does that have their fulfillment? It has their fulfillment in you, but then we become the the altar, so to speak, that that. Uh, uh, lifts up to God the fragrance of his son. That happens in us. We are, how does Peter say it here? Let me look up this this verse real quick. I love this verse. I think it's First Peter 2, 5. You also, as living stones, okay, so we're the living stones, the stones that that are built together into a house, are being built together up, oh, here it says right here, are being built up a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now there's the fulfillment of these sacrifices. It doesn't get into a whole lot of detail, but it certainly shows you what's their nature, spiritual, and where they're operating in you. Okay, now the same thing is true of circumcision. God didn't change his mind about circumcision. He didn't, he, he, he didn't just stop that. It's still a reality, and yet it's a spiritual removal. It's, it's, an, it's a spiritual experience whereby blood is shed and flesh is left behind. And we enter into a covenant. Now, let me just review again. This is one of those things I thought I might just say a couple things about, just in case people are hearing this for the first time. But what's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship. It's a specific kind of a relationship. It's like um, it's like a, a an agreement whereby two parties can enter into some kind of a relationship. So we have covenants with marriage covenants, and, and what what is that? You know, what's the difference? What's the difference between a marriage? covenant and my relationship with my son you know that was it's a different kind of relationship one you know i mean we could go through and list all the ways but everyone knows we may not talk about it very much but everyone knows that a marriage relationship has a certain expectation has boundaries and it's it's expected that both both parties meet within meet and relate and live together within the boundaries of that one agreement well because it's a specific it's a it's a covenant it's a specific kind of relationship. It's very different than other kinds of relationships. It's different than the relationship that I have with my dog. It's different than the relationship I have with my, with my, with my kids or with my friends or, or with my car. It, there's, there's different kinds of relationships. And the new covenant or the old covenant, both of them were, were specific relationships. And if we, God said that he would relate to us according to a very, very specific agreement, a specific kind of relating the nature of a relationship he offered to us and we need to in order to enter into that there's there's a way by which we enter into that relationship now the picture of all this is the reason I'm saying all this is because in the old co covenant there was a there was a picture 
and, and, and I said a minute ago, I love the language here in Genesis 17 because it's really strong. It's look if you if you, it doesn't matter if you're born in the house or bought in the house or or become just you know a stranger that wants to be joined to Israel. However, you got into Israel. If you want to be part of Israel, you have there, there's no exception. You have to be circumcised. In fact, if you refuse to be circumcised, you are cut off from your people. How does he say it exactly? Uh, he says, cut off from his people. Oh, yeah, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The absence of circumcision is considered the breaking of the covenant. Okay, It means you are no longer relating to God in any way that he recognizes at all. You are strangers of God. You are outside the boundaries of the light. You are in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, you are outside of the life and the light and the truth and the, and the, and the righteousness of, of this covenant, which, which, which is all, you know, every covenant in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament was a picture of, uh, of Christ in one way or another. What, what it means to abide within the boundaries of a person. What it means to live within Live in him by his life, by his light, by the law of the spirit of life uh, of Christ. And and so the God gave Abraham this picture, and the picture is, uh, is, is the removal of... Now, in the Old Covenant, it was just a, a piece of skin, but it was still, uh, you know... I'm glad it wasn't a finger, you know, or an arm, but it still painted the same picture, you know. Uh, it, it's a removal of flesh through in, in, in involved blood, and it, that that putting away of flesh or putting behind flesh and shedding of blood was the way that a person entered into this kind of relationship. All right, so. What does that correspond to? Well, that it corresponds to I mean, Paul. No, no one says it better than Paul in Colossians two eleven. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, "In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." That's Paul's understanding of what all of these pictures in the Old Covenant were talking about. That they're not a removal of a piece of the flesh, but a removal of the entire body of flesh. The entire body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And that's the way without... And I know that Christians often don't understand this when they're first born again. We, we, we are born again as newborn babies, that, just like natural babies that don't understand anything about their new life or their new location. You know, it's, We start spiritual life as ignorant as we do, or more so, than as, when we start natural life. We're completely blind and ignorant of where we've, who we are, what we are, where we are, and all, all those fundamental questions that the Spirit of God is going to try to teach you when you are when you come to live in Christ. You know, eventually the the ones who live in the nat if you're talking about natural babies, the ones who live in the natural realm begin to teach you about the life that you have. But spiritually speaking it's similar the, the spirit who is the life, the spirit who is the place, you know, be, has to be the one that teaches you the life that you received and the and the realm into which you have been born and but in order in either, in either case, well, what I'm trying to say is that in order to enter into that reality you cannot bring the flesh there there has to be a leaving behind what is born of flesh is flesh what is, what is born of spirit is spirit the spirit gives life the flesh profits nothing the flesh is of no value Worse than that, it's 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 constantly opposing, contrary to enemies, uh, uh, enmity is the word enmity with the spirit, and you can read that in a whole bunch of different verses. So, what God established in Abraham's day and continued throughout the entire history of Israel was a you could say a prophetic picture of the removal of the Adamic man, the natural man, the flesh man, removal of that nature, that kind, in order to 
enter into a relationship where Christ was the life, where the blood was given to you, where the life was given to you. That's the thing with all, all these covenants. The blood is such a huge deal. The blood is, is the life. The blood, they can't drink it. They can't do what they want with it. You know, it's to be poured out on the altar, period. It's given to you as a covering, he says. Don't do what you want with the blood. Going way back to, um, uh, going way back to Noah. You know, right away, as soon as God had judged flesh in the ark, right after that, the blood was sacred. The blood, you can't drink it. It's, it's given to them. God provides the life in this cup. That's my point. I believe that's that's at least part of his point. God provides the life in this covenant. You don't bring your own. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. It is not I, but Christ who lives in me. He gives you the life, and the life is sacred. The life is His. You don't contribute. You receive. You, you, you abide in. You walk in. But you don't bring your flesh into His land and think it's useful or even not uh, uh, an obstacle. It is an obstacle. And that's why in, in, in these pictures here in Abraham, but if you skip all the way to Joshua 5, it's probably the, the, the clearest and coolest picture, in my opinion, of this. They, they come out of Egypt, and yet they refuse to circumcise their, their sons for 40 years. And what's the result? What does that mean? That means they refuse to bear in their own soul the removal of the flesh that God had established at the door in Exodus 12. God crucified, put them into the death of the lamb. You know, he painted, they painted the blood over the door, went into the door, ate the dead lamb, stayed in there till the next day. And as far as God's, you know, type and shadow view was concerned, they had been crucified with, with Christ and, and came out, uh, as one new man in the morning, Israel, my son, my firstborn, sharing uh, the the life of him, and they come out, and and yet there's this is forty year period where it talks about in Joshua chapter five. It's Joshua, right? Yeah, I, it's just because sometimes I mix up the names in Spanish and English, but um, yeah, Joshua chapter five. It's you you see this awesome picture of how or first of all God says here, well God says that this this rebellious generation that came out of that came out of Egypt refused to circumcise their sons. And yet, upon entering into the land, and what is that? That's really a refusal. It's a refusal to walk in covenant. It's a refusal to meet God where he has given us a place to meet him. It's a refusal to go into this relationship that he has provided for them. They they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bear in themselves the end of what God had put away in, in the Red Sea. They wouldn't they wouldn't see with their hearts. They wouldn't uh, walk in agreement with in their own hearts what what God had crucified, de- de- killed, and buried back in Egypt. Do you see what I'm saying? They wouldn't they wouldn't apply that to their own soul. They wouldn't apply that to their own person. You know, they wouldn't apply that to their own sons. It wasn't how they knew God. It wasn't what they knew of God. In fact, they just continued for 40 years to relate to God according to the religious imaginations, uh, the wilderness of Adamic thoughts and expectations until they all died. And yet, God, while one Israel was dying, another Israel was being raised up in their midst. And and that, that second generation, for them to experience anything of this land the land that is God's purpose, the land that is God's kingdom, the land that represents the soul's experience of Christ, Christ formed in you, Christ glorified in you, Christ's increase in you, your experience of being in Him. It's this relationship. It's this reality. You can't enter into that land unless you're circumcised you'll never and let me just say this really plainly you'll ne- new birth starts at the at the uh, at the red sea but your exp- salvation happens at the red sea but your experience of salvation your knowledge of salvation the 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 beginning of your journey of spiritual growth begins sorry begins 
at the Jordan River. And what happened at the Jordan River? Well, you have a generation that by faith follows, lifts up their eyes, sees the ark, follows the, the ark into a land that is totally unknown. And God makes it clear that this land is unknown. God says, make sure you keep the ark, the glory of God, in front of your eyes. Follow it. Follow it, and, and, and before this ark was hidden, this ark was, this ark was veiled, you know, but all of a sudden, he whips it out in front of everybody and, and puts it on display and says, keep yourself, you know, 900 cubits back from the ark so that you can follow it, so that you can always see it, you know, don't get too close. You want to see the distinction here. And follow it into the land, and, and, and you have to, he's, I love the language there, he says, you have to follow the ark because you have not gone this way before. This thing, you're, I mean, they could, they could see across the Jordan River. It's not like it's the Mississippi, you know. It's, it's, like, it's like 15 meters across. It's not big. They could have probably waded across it, too. I mean, that wasn't the point. The point was, the, the point was that from God's perspective, they're entering into a land that has nothing to do with flesh, where the inheritance is totally foreign to them, where everything has to be shown to them, where they have to follow the view of the ark into this land. In fact, they followed around the cities, too, and watched them start falling. The ark is what brings them in. The ark is what parts the Jordan River. The ark is what conquers the cities. They just keep their eyes on that ark, and they go into a land that's totally foreign to them. But the first thing, the very first thing that happens in that land and this is getting back to Joshua 5, is that God says, call all the men together and cut off all the flesh of the foreskins. You cannot take one step into this land. You cannot do one thing in this land. You cannot inherit one thing in this land. You'll never follow the ark in this land. You'll never win a single battle in this land. You'll never know the kingdom of God if you try to bring that flesh into this place. You cannot do it. And, 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 you know, I'm sure it's not the first thing they want. They, they're entering into this kind of hostile territory where these, there's these enemies, and they're, they're probably, you know, a little bit nervous about that. I, I guarantee the first thing they wanted to do was not remove a uh, flesh from a sensitive uh, area. But it, nevertheless, God was very serious about his pictures of this, um, of this reality. Why? Because in Christ... The flesh profits nothing because in Christ you'll never experience the increase if you try to bring that thing with you. In Christ, the cities will not fall before an uncircumcised people because in I mean I could just go on with all these pictures that you go on to see in the book of Joshua, which are pictures of increase, pictures of victory, pictures of of and and I love I love how. Uh, I love how Joshua enters into the land, and then he bumps into the the captain of the you know the, uh, the army of the Lord, and and he asks just like we do, he asks one of these natural minded questions, and he says, well, "Are you for us, or, or are you for our enemies?" And and, uh, and the angel of the Lord just says, "No." <laughs> it doesn't say. I, I just love it. He doesn't say, you know, no, that's not the right question, or no, I'm not not really either. He just says no. But then he says this. Take off your sandals because you have come into holy ground. It's not, it's not that I'm on your side. You've just come into me. And you, I don't want you to bring anything from that wilderness that's clinging to your sandals. I don't want you to bring anything of that other side of the Jordan into this place. It doesn't belong here. Kick off your sandals and, 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 jo, and, jo, and jo, or Joseph, uh, Joshua does and, and falls on his face and realizes that he's just come into the to the land of the of the one who has the sword, okay, the one who's carrying the sword, and he's the one who has the sword. The Lord Himself is going to go before them, and all those pictures are just fantastic, and they have to do with the Lord's increase in your own soul, the conquering of your uncircumcised flesh, and the removing of your high places and cities that have been strong places your whole life in the flesh and all of that and that's that's that we'll get to that when we get to the land but the thing i'm trying to highlight right now and i'm taking a long time in doing it but the thing i'm trying to highlight right now is that god 
God shows us here in in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham and he he shows us all throughout various pictures between Genesis 17 and Joshua 5 but right here in Joshua 5 the very first thing that happens the, the, the thing that God wants to get clear before they even go anywhere in this land is that the way to enter into him from his perspective the way to even begin to experience him is when we realize that flesh, that Adam, that the natural man is cut off and left behind. And then everything about that land comes to be what he is made unto us. He is made unto us wells that we didn't dig and cities that we didn't build and vines that we didn't plant and all that other stuff and wars that we don't really have to fight with to show up by faith and then watch him do it. You know, I mean... All of that is is part of circumcision, and to the Lord, and and, and to Paul here in Second Corinthians or in uh, uh, Colossians two eleven, I, I think that's at least part of what Paul is saying when he says, "You have entered into Him. In Him, you were circumcised. It's like in the land you were circumcised. You came in, and you were circumcised. But it's a much bigger circumcision than the types and shadows. It's the removal of the entire body of flesh by the circumcision. It's a it's a it's it's a circumcision made without hands, you know. Don't try to go back to the shadows about this thing, you know. Don't don't think about it in fleshly ways. It's the removal of the entire body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So I you know I can see Abraham kind of asking a question like, Lord, what's this you know what's this all about? You know why why do we have to what you know can't we just like sign a contract or something? Why do I have to cut off the skin of my body? You know, I have to remove flesh. And God's answer might be something like, well, if you really want to know the truth, Abraham, it's because in your flesh dwells no good thing. Because your flesh, Abraham, profits nothing. It's because in my sight, no flesh will glory and no flesh will inherit anything of my son. Because, because you'll gain nothing in this land through the efforts of your flesh. You'll know nothing in this world of Christ with the mind of your flesh. You'll you'll inherit nothing for that fleshly man. And and, and, and all of it, all of that is what I'm trying to say to you right now, Abraham, with this circumcision. Now, now remove the flesh and we have a covenant. Okay? Remove the flesh and we have a relationship here. And Paul says later in Philippians, I love how he says uh, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, we are the circumcision. Speaking to the church now, not to, not to Jewish, you know, uh, not, not to, the, to the Jews and the natural, you know, types and shadows, but now to the church. He says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He didn't just throw that last part in there by chance. That was that was how he understood the circumcision. You know, they were the circumcision in in, in Israel back in you know in in the old covenant. They were the 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 type and shadow circumcision who rejoiced in the land and and you know did have confidence in what they were in terms of a natural bloodline and natural circumcision or whatever. But Paul's bringing that thing all the way over into the fulfillment and saying, no, we are the circumcision the ones who have lost the body of sin by the cross, who are in Christ Jesus rejoicing and have absolutely no confidence in the flesh. Um, anyway, at the end of this chapter, I'll just mention one more thing about this chapter and then I'll, I'll move on to the next one here. Um, but the uh, at the end, I, I, like, I just like how it mentions, where is it here? It says, so this is in verse 20, 23. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in his house, were brought with money money from a foreigner. They were circumcised with him. And so here it is, with him, that very same day, that very same day, three times. I was reading through this. This is not too long ago. I was just reading through this. I'm like, why, Lord, why, why do you keep saying? Why, why do you seem to be highlighting the fact that everyone was circumcised on the same day? You know, why, why didn't you know? 
I mean, it could have happened over the course of, you know, like we'll do the guys 20 and under uh, today and then like 20 through 40 on Monday. And, you know, they could have done it anyway, but he mentions it. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but uh, he mentions like kind of, kind of three times here that, that all of them were circumcised on the exact same day. And and it just kind of dawned on me that, that that's just how it works. You know, we're all there's just one big circumcision that that cuts away all everyone and everyone that comes to Christ goes back to that same day i mean it's that same day where no flesh exists it's that same day of the lord where where the enemies of the lord are cut off and removed you know and it's just really one big circumcision that everyone gets to partake in it's it's one day one light that we walk in where there is now no flesh and one land it's we all kind of we all kind of go to that one day that one work, that one cross, that one giant flint knife that Jesus uh, offered to us in his in his cross, and experience that in, in the same way, in the same in the same day, so to speak, not in the same natural day and time, but um, I think you get what I mean. All right. Um, the next chapter is. I'm actually not going to say much about this chapter because ba- basically, what happens in this chapter uh, in Genesis is that the angels appear to um, Abraham and they talk with him about the, <clears throat> again, about the promised son. And then there's that thing with Sarah, she laughs. And then there's this conversation about how God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and and that he won't. And then there's this interchange between Abraham and God where the, the end result of it is that God says he would never destroy the righteous with the wicked. Um, and that's because he will take the righteous out, not because he's not going to destroy the wicked, but because he's going to take the righteous out. But, um, and we'll talk about that in a second when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, if we have time, but I just wanted to mention something here. I don't know that we've, I don't think we've talked about it yet in this series. Um, not, not, not that I remember, but, uh, you'll notice, you'll notice in the Old Testament, if you pay attention and this, <clears throat> this kind of, I don't know how, I, I guess I missed this for a lot of years, but um, you'll notice that there's these people or beings that appear and speak to folks, Abraham or um, or Jacob or uh, Joshua or Moses. And, and they, you know, they talk to them and, and, it's weird because the Bible calls them a, like a man or three men in this case, or two men. I think it's three with Abraham, and then when they get to Lot, it's two, if I remember correctly. But um, and uh, <clears throat> and and they'll call them like men, and then they'll call them angels, and then they'll call them the Lord, you know. And then it kind of goes back to angels, and it calls them the Lord again. Or it'll say the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob, and then Jacob says, "I've wrestled with God and lived," you know, or and it's kind of a it's kind of, it can be kind of a confusing thing but i think the the reason for it is because it, and something we need to understand about the old covenant or the whole dealing of god with man before christ and that is that god and i'm going to say again i'm going to say something but i'm going to kind of qualify it and explain it but god didn't really ever have true relationship with mankind before the resurrection of jesus christ if we understand that true relationship is dwelling in his presence union with him being joined to him now see that that strikes people as kind of funny because we're so used to the natural realm that we think that if an angel appeared and talked to us or if a pillar of fire appeared above our house then that would be a real relationship with God but no that's those are real things and yet they are they are God's God using figures and symbols and other beings in this case angels whatever exactly they are to represent him to a people okay you'll notice a couple places in the in the new testament where god talks about or where the author talks about how god um that and how jesus for instance in hebrews chapter one or in galatians chapter three where 
the author talks about how God used a mediator, the mediator, that the old covenant was mediated through angels, or that Jesus is better than the old covenant in so many ways, one of which is that God is no longer using the, medi- the mediating of angels in our covenant. That's in Hebrews chapter 1. And sometimes people can kind of skim right over that stuff and say, like, oh, what does that mean, mediating of angels? I don't remember a whole lot of stories about angels in the old covenant. Well, I think this is part of what he's talking about here. All of these interactions, in fact, you could, you could look at, there was, again, the several times where angels speak to Abraham, I mentioned where the angel wrestles with Jacob, where, where Moses talks to, the, to God in the burning bush, but it also calls it the angel of the Lord, where the, I just talked about the one where the angel appears to Joshua, um, where God promises that his angel will go before them into the land. Remember that? And they must obey his voice because I will put my voice in him and you must obey my voice. And he talks about it as an angel but also as his own voice. And and I don't exactly know how this works, but I do know that when Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago, he started to say things that, well, I think we, we still don't pay a lot of attention to, but he... He started to say things like, nobody has seen God at any time. Or, nobody knows the Father except the Son. Or, nobody, now this is a kicker for some people in John chapter 3, nobody has ascended into heaven. Nobody. Except the Son of Man that descended from heaven. In other words, he kept saying things that, 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 that clearly stated that the presence of God, the knowing of God, relationship with God, was something that man had never experienced. And that, that's, that's kind of weird for us. Because what about all that, you know, God didn't God put his tabernacle right in the midst of Israel? I mean, didn't God speak to the prophets through these mighty visions and signs? Well, yeah, he did all that. But see, all of that was through one kind of mediation or another whether it was through types and shadows, whether it was through visions and dreams, whether it was through angels that represented his presence, represented his work, represented his words, it still wasn't what Jesus understood to be true knowledge or true union or true relationship. You know, when Jesus says in John chapter 3, no one has ascended to heaven except the one who, who descended from heaven, someone could object and say, Hey, what about like Elijah? Didn't he go up in that in that, in that uh, whirlwind with the chariot of fire? Or Enoch? Didn't he walk with God and then was not? Uh, or or you know Moses? He didn't make the cut either. I mean, that was he's a pretty righteous guy. And the answer to those questions is no. He they no because heaven isn't just the place where God lives. Heaven is the reality of being. See see. God doesn't live in heaven. Heaven lives in God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Heaven is that spiritual realm and life and reality into which we are brought in Christ, in the Father. It's not bigger than God and He's there. God's bigger than it and it's part of Him. You know what I'm saying? It's not, you can't look at it that way. And it was completely off limits to, to souls until those souls pass through the real door, which was Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and entered into the person who is heaven himself. And all the ones who painted pictures of that reality, like Elijah and Enoch and whoever else in the Old Testament, slept until they, with us together, were made perfect in the resurrection, which is exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 says. I can read it for you if you don't believe me, but I think most of you are familiar with that verse. Um, Hebrews 11, first chapter 13, then, let's see. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And then skipping down to verse 39, all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That's just another way to say, I believe, what what I've been saying. You, You can't get to heaven until heaven lives in you. 
you can't go to heaven until the person who is the presence of God cuts from your soul, removes from your soul everything that's contrary to himself through the cross, and then receives you unto himself. And that's what Jesus was doing. That's what John 14 is about. I'm going to prepare a place for you and my Father. And we all say, great, I can't wait to go there in thousands of years. And Jesus said, I'll be right back, you know, three days. I'm going away, and, and then I'm going to come back, and you'll see me. Who was he talking to? You know, the 2,135 generation? No. Talking to his disciples. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back, and you're going to see me. And in that day, you will see that I am in my Father. You are in me. And I am in you. I, I want you to be where I am, but I can't take you there. No one's ever been there. I can't take you there unless I make a way for you to be there. And the way that I make for you to be there is through this cross, this circumcision, this removal of flesh that I have to accomplish. And you will weep and you will, you, you will mourn. And the world who hates me will rejoice. But then you'll see me again and you'll be glad. You know, and he's saying all these things right there in John chapter 14. And we, we, we launched those things so far out into the future when Jesus was talking to his disciples about what they would experience themselves. And then it should be the present and, and eternal reality of every believer since then. So my point is basically this. You see angels here, okay? I'm kind of, again, off on a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. But you see, you see angels in this story, and they are uh, they're kind of representatives of the Lord. They're kind of the Lord, but they're not really the Lord in spirit and truth. They're not really the Lord in the actual presence of God. In fact, one place, if you think about it in Exodus, um, God's talking to Moses about how he'll go. It's kind of a weird scripture because he's been talking to them about how he's going to go with them and how you know he's going to lead them into the promised land and whatever and then and then he kind of throws this little thing in there and says but i won't really dwell in your midst because i would consume you all and you would die before me you know and uh and even moses who wants to see the face of god god says uh, i'll tell you what i'll make you a deal you can see my back parts because anyone who sees my face will die you know you can't see my face in this covenant but there's there's coming a covenant where someone, my son, will actually bring you in himself to my face. And you will see him. And you will see me. And you will look into the face of Jesus Christ. You know, and anyway, all that's just, just all throughout the, the, old, the old covenant. That's just a really, really big thing. Um, so, uh, he- he- heaven, let me say it again. Heaven has always been off-limits to the flesh. And until the cross came that put away flesh, heaven was exclusive to three people that are one God. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. You know, heaven was, was the Godhead itself, the reality of what they experienced in their shared life and union and shared glory and whatever. And the only way to actually bring a human soul to heaven is to bring a human soul into that relationship. Never making us God, obviously, but bringing us into that relationship to participate in all that it means to be there with him where he is. Remember Jesus cried out in John 17, God, Father, I want them to be with me where I am, where I was before the creation of the world, that they may see my glory, the glory I had with you before the world was. All these things, I mean, Jesus said this stuff. And that's exactly where he brought us. And that's exactly where you are right now. So Paul says, you have died. You, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, you were dead in sins and transgressions, but he made you alive, raised you up, seated you with Christ in heavenly places, and or the, all the blessings of Christ are, are, are spiritual blessings in him now. You know, these are now realities for us. All right, I got just a few more minutes. Let me say a couple things about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we can pick up this next week. Uh, just kind of to, to introduce it, um, Sodom and Gomorrah is one one of what I call the the uh, the don't look back stories of the Old Testament. It's not the only one. There's uh, there's several, but uh, 
but it's a it's a it's a pretty famous one because of the whole pillar of salt thing that his wife his wife kind of uh kind of becomes the emblem of the whole don't look back you know if we understand what that's all about um it, what's going on is that there's a place a city in this case or two cities a land, a place, a man, really, that is under condemnation, that is condemned of God. That, and there's nothing, the, the entire thing is going to be destroyed. The entire, it's kind of like the flood, okay? The entire thing is going to be destroyed. And, and, and Abraham wants to make sure that God knows what he's doing and kind of asks him, you sure, what if there's like, you know, 50 righteous in the city? God says, well, I wouldn't destroy it. You know, what if there's 40? What if there's, you know, what if there's uh, 30, 20, 10? And he goes down that list and and God says, no, that, that's, you're not following what I'm going to do here. Um, but see, God, and I have a diagram, maybe I'll put up this diagram next time because it'll take me the rest of our time just to find it, but I have this diagram of kind of like a Sodom on the bottom of the diagram with a cross going this way, kind of uh, uh, horizontally, and and then this mountain above. Because remember, after they come out of Sodom, he, the angel tells them to go to this mountain. And incidentally, Lot doesn't want to. But um, what God is doing is not, he's not planning on saving. See, this is he does save Lot and his and his family, but not by saving the the place the world the man that is condemned he saves them see he doesn't save them in it he saves them from it by by taking them out of it and that's going to be a really important thing for us to realize in our hearts in our journey with Christ god you know it's same thing with with egypt god did not save israel in egypt God saved Israel from Egypt by taking them out of it, even though their hearts always were looking back. And and so he's trying to, God's desire is to actually destroy this thing. And yet he's also, his, you see these angels who represent the Lord, um, Basically, dragging Lot and his family out, you know, like they're tallying or tarrying and, and giving excuses and and uh, running around trying to like convince people to come with them and stuff, and 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 then finally the the, the angels is basically drag them out of the city. God's trying to destroy it, but He's trying to pull those who will come into a different habitation, a different land, a different dwelling place. Okay. That's what salvation is all about. See, see, see. The natural mind wants the sal- wants the salvation of Sodom, and and yet God offers us a salvation from Sodom. The natural, the Christian world wants the salvation of the world, <clears throat> and yet God offers us an exodus out of the world. We're always trying to bring God into Sodom, and get Him to fix it. And the only reason he entered into Sodom was to pull out the ones who would come, to drag out if they wouldn't run, you know. The only reason he came into Egypt was to take out what what would come with him. You know, the only reason he spoke to Abraham in the beginning was because Abraham would listen and go out from his country kindred and father's house it's the same story it repeats over and over again but it, it's it's this it's this thing we have to understand about our relationship to god in christ god isn't his interactions with the world aren't to fix it to improve it to bless it or to change it his interactions with the world are to take your soul out of it and cause you to dwell in a different mountain in a different place in a high place and and here's the thing, he, he, the only way you're going to ever experience the thing he's bringing you into is if your heart stops looking back. Because when you look back, you become the thing that you're looking back unto. You, you, you see that 
condemned man and you live that condemned man. You become that thing that's under condemnation. That's what happened to Lot's wife. She, you know, the, the, her, her looking back, it wasn't just a picture of curiosity. I don't think that's what we're meant to see there. I don't think she just like heard a loud boom and then like was like, oh, turned around and became a pillar of salt. I don't think that's, yeah, that'd be kind of a weird uh, story. But I think the, the, the implication there is that she turned back wanting to go back. She, she had made her home there. She had a place there, a purpose there, something. She had life in something that God called death. She had a home in something that God w- was, was exiting out of and, and, and leaving behind. You know, she, she didn't just turn back like to, 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 to check it out, to, you know, to see if it really was on fire. She turned back. You know, she turned, she turned back. And and seeing, finding her life and her light and her purpose and her home in that thing that God had condemned, she, now see this is exactly how it feels in our soul. This is exactly how it feels. When we look back, when we look down, we become, we experience in ourselves, we become the manifestation of the thing we're seeing. We become the, the living experience and expression of the, of the very thing we're looking at. Man, it's exactly like that. Someone says, I'm glad God doesn't do that anymore. That was pretty intense. No, no, that's still happening right now. You know, I, maybe I experienced it today. <laughs> you know, it's still happening we 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 don't get these don't look back testimonies and yet they fill the old testament and then and then you come into the new the new test well yeah the new testament and you, you got you got uh peter uh looking back to the waves and the wind and sing you know he, he's he shouldn't have looked back he's walking on the water and as soon as he looks back he sinks into it and then you got then you got uh uh uh, Jesus saying, he, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And, and then you have Paul saying, this one thing I do, I, I forget, I forget what lies behind. I forget it. I forget that world and that man under condemnation. I forget that covenant that God put away. I forget the shadows. I, and, and I lay hold of that which he has placed me in the presence of. I lay hold of that which is right before me. You know, and and it's the same thing with us. And I'm going to wrap up here, but that's just a uh, that's just a, a key picture. That I guess it starts here. Maybe it starts with Abraham going out and not looking back, but he brings Lot and all of that. Maybe that's the first picture of the don't look back stories. But I, this one's even more clear. Um, and and we do we do well to pay very close attention to what God's trying to show us in this story. So I'll stop with that and uh, see if anyone has comments or questions.